At Pennzoil, we have one job. Pioneering a motor oil so advanced, you don't have to think about your motor oil. Instead, you can think about how your engine sounds, how your stomach feels as the RPMs build, how your wheels hug the curves, and how, with the Pennzoil Platinum up to 15-year, 500,000-mile protection guarantee, your adventures will be many. Pennzoil. Long may we drive. Find it at Firestone Complete Auto Care. Enrollment required. Keep your receipts. Other conditions apply. See Pennzoil.com warranty for full details. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom. And this week we are having a new guest, but through a mutual friend. And this is John Barnwell. So John, first of all, thank you very much for joining us. And how are you doing this evening? Oh, I'm doing great. It's uh, my pleasure to come and visit you. No, it's our pleasure. And so first I want to thank our mutual friend, that's uh, Reverend Dr. David Parry, who some of you probably have heard his voice and his name on this show. His name certainly because he's the force behind the Nephilim Anthropology Conference. Um, so for those of you who would like to uh, see that event live, you can go to Glasgow. Uh, uh, but for those of you who can't get to Glasgow in October 28th and 29th, there are uh, virtual tickets available. And the more of you buy those, the more likely it is that they fly me into Glasgow. And I would like to go to Glasgow. Uh, so I'm going to get it out early now. It's nacon, N-A-C-O-N dot eventbrite, which is one word, E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot C-O, not com, C-O dot U-K. Uh, and ticket prices are very reasonable for two days, and it's a multidisciplinary panel. Um and that was a long way of saying that uh, John is a mutual friend through the uh, 
the good Reverend Doctor. They actually did a podcast together. They did over a hundred episodes together. Uh, and actually, I'm going to let John tell you a little bit about himself because I don't think anyone's going to be as he actually owns a very impressive bookstore, uh, unique uh, in the world. So, John, tell him a little bit about your background and and you know all your four one one. Well, I uh, just to preface this with a little correction. I don't own a bookstore. I manage the largest alternative metaphysical holistic bookstore in the world for many years. Okay, wonderful. And uh, but yeah, it's almost like owning it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, through my association with the bookstore, I was able to come into contact with many, 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 and many international figures and uh, authors and spiritual teachers and yogis and archaeologists, historians, philosophers. The, the, the list is virtually just endless because it was uh, day in and day out. And at that time, there was no internet. So if you wanted to get into a subject, you had no other recourse but then to visit a place such as the Mayflower. And like I said, we were the most extensive in the world. At least that's according to Donald Weiser, who ran Weiser's bookstore in New York, and they always told him he had the largest. And he came by with his wife, and he said, "Well, I just want to tell you that that they tell me that I have the biggest, and you're twice the size of mine." And that was before we moved uh, from our place on uh, Woodward into Berkeley and doubled the size of our inventory. So it was really quite a learning experience being able to associate with so many fascinating people. Of course, my principal area of study is the work of Dr. Rudolf Steiner, whose collected edition is in excess of some 350 volumes. So that's a lifelong study. Yes, indeed. And uh, John has written two books himself, and, and we're certainly going to talk about those. And I don't think we can talk about those without going into a little bit of background. So we're going to talk a little bit about things like arcane wi uh, wisdom, the noble traveler, and, and concepts such as those. Um, there, there's uh, We've had shows on Tarot here. Uh, so if folks haven't listened to those, you may want to go back and take a listen because that may be helpful to know about the major arcana or arcana. Uh, there's 22 of them. And there's also uh, there's a 22-fold stanza in the light on the path. So these are things that, listen, I don't expect too many people who are listening to understand what all of this means right now, but that's why we have John here. Um, so maybe it's best to start with, Who's Rudolf Steiner and what were his teachings? Yep, lost your sound. You're muted. Okay. There well, you. first off, you said it right there that that uh, someone would uh, not be familiar with all there is to a subject. Uh, you made reference to that, and of course, why that's the whole point of a bookstore is to be able to expand one's learning, and in, in, and the extent of that would depend upon. Of course, the uh, reader's ability to be able to try and take steps through any any uh, particular field of study that they might be involved in. And so a lot of what I did at the time was they would come back and they'd say, okay, now what? And I would point them in the direction 
of uh, one or numerous sources that would help them fulfill whatever uh, curriculum they were pursuing, uh, their field of study, whether spiritual or historic or philosophical or psychological or astrological, uh, it really didn't matter. And it was working at high speed, to say the least. But ultimately, that led me into an association with the work of Rudolf Steiner, which, again, was really the first page in my spiritual biography was turned when I heard the name Rudolf Steiner. I was in gym class with uh, my friend next to me. Uh, he was the grandson of the Polish ambassador. He turned to me because we lined up alphabetically. He turned to me in gym class because he's right next to me. He says, have you ever heard of Rudolf Steiner? <laughs> and it rang a bell in my heart. I didn't know what it meant. But I, I had a definite feeling that resulted from that. He also told me about Ospensky, and I found him interesting but too intellectual. But Rudolf Steiner ultimately became a lifelong pursuit for me. So we're talking about this was in the eighth grade. Okay, they call it middle school now, junior high, we mm -hmm. called it back then. But right. that was like, uh, you know, back in the early middle 60s. And so I've been able to pursue uh, Rudolf Steiner's work. And ultimately, the Mayflower sold more of Rudolf Steiner's books than anybody in the English-speaking world. And so uh, it brought me into relationship with a lot of the various authors that worked in that field and all of that. But ultimately, what led me to writing my books was I was in association with Ralph Marinelli, who was... Uh, he was one of the heads of the Waldorf Institute uh, that was uh, the teacher training program for Waldorf schools. Okay. And Waldorf schools were founded by Rudolf Steiner. It's the largest private education system in the world. And he was one of the three principals. And we began an area of study regarding a comment that Rudolf Steiner said that, that science needs to come to understand that the heart is not a pump. And unless they got past that mechanistic view of the heart, uh, certain things couldn't take place. And so we found that to be a challenge. And, and working as the laboratory assistant with Ralph Baranelli, we were able to, to unequivocally uh, prove the heart was not a pump. Uh, as far as Exactly what is the heart uh, that developed and is still developing. Uh, one of the associates to the art, the paper that was written, Dr. Franco first, has written numerous articles and books uh, relative to the subject. And I leave that to specialists in the field. But at the end of my association with Ralph as his editor and lab assistant, uh, I decided that I was going to pursue it more from the historic literary pursuit. And so I, that brought me to writing my first book, and that's The Arcana of the Grail Angel, The Spiritual Science of the Holy Blood and of the Holy Grail. It's a study developed on the work of Rudolf Steiner of the underground streams of esoteric Christianity, which flowed from the Brotherhood of the Holy Grail to the Order of the Knights Templar and to the true Rosicrucian Order and has a foreword by my best buddy, Dr. Douglas Gabriel. And in there, 
I use uh, the 22 Major Arcana as a study tool to be able to work out the cosmology as presented in the work of Gus Steiner. And I also use that cosmological sequence because I found it to be within the book, A Light on the Path, that was written down by Mabel Collins. And this has a foreword by William Bento, the noted astrosopher and astrologer. And in there, that's more of a meditative tool, the second book. The first book is more of a 30,000-foot view of history, so to speak, going all the way from the Stone Age, and actually even before that, but primarily from the Stone Age up to the present time and projecting on into the future. Very small topic then. So uh, if it's even humanly possible, what what is the crux of Steiner's message? Well, the, the, the crux of Steiner's work is uh, essentially, it's, it's called anthroposophy. And what does that mean? Well, anthroposophia is like anthropos is man and Sophia is wisdom, so it's the wisdom of being human. And so it's difficult to develop uh, a wholesome relationship to uh, what a human being should be about if you don't really know what a human being is. And Rudolf Steiner, who was a noted scientific uh, writer and uh, also a literary uh, writer who did a lot of uh, articles for reviews and all of that, but he ended up becoming the editor of Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's scientific papers for the Goethe Archive, and it was put together for the Kirshner Collected Edition of Goethe's work. And coming out of that field of study, uh, he realized the, the relevance of of Goethe's development of the science of morphology and how history has a metamorphosis and that different historical periods, they're not the same. And that human beings throughout history, they're not the same. That there's this unfolding cadence of human evolution that's involved. And through his uh, abilities of supersensible perception was able to observe these types of developments through what's called the Akashic Record, which maintains a record of all activities that have happened during the course of history and before. I've heard the Akashic uh, Record referred to almost like a a spiritual cloud, um, like the cloud stores data, not an actual, you know, cirrus or, you know, cumulus cloud. Um, But but, uh, is that even close to a, a good parallel? Well, I think that that's a, a, a could be an effective artistic way of, of living with the idea because until one comes into a relationship with certain things uh, like the, the realms beyond the physical, you know, the etheric and the astral and then the realm in which the I am or ego dwells are vastly different than the world that we know. And it's a good idea in pursuing these that we uh, don't paint ourselves into a corner conceptually. And that's what people tend to do. They want to try and make the world fit their model of reality. 
I prefer to maintain an open-ended pursuit and just try to improve my questions because many times the situation, just when you think you got it figured out, all of a sudden you'll get new data and then a whole other uh, panoramic view can unfold. So it behooves one to be humble. In my three or four years of, of doing this show, and coming across people who have, you know, talk more about the the spiritual uh, and the theosophical and the anthrop uh, anthroposophia, uh, which I'm sure I just botched the, how to pronounce it, but we know the, the word. Uh, I've heard different ways of getting to the akashic record. One, you know, is the you know everyone's sort of favorite is psychedelics, ayahuasca. Uh, another is just deep meditation. Um, you know, you know your uh, vision quest, so to speak. Uh, another is through luminaries. You've been chosen by someone, whether it's an angel, a luminary, some other high spirit um, that that's sort of tasked you or is connecting you. And then another method is through just learning. Um, uh, you know, and of course, learning it mean, includes contemplation. So that can be a sort of meditation in and of itself. So those those two may or may not, you know, in the Venn diagram, they may or may or not overlap. They probably do. But do you believe that the path is through learning or, or are the other ones available as well? Well, I think that, that all these various facets are there, but I think it behooves one to uh, gather some knowledge. And that's the point of why Rudolf Steiner also referred uh, this Geisteswissenschaft, uh, that this this uh, spiritual science is what it is, and so that that he said that it was the destiny of mankind to be able to develop the thinking principle and to be able to take that with oneself and that sense for truth uh, when one crosses the threshold into the next world. Uh, given the understanding that many, uh, most of the conclusions that you've developed during your life will be left at the door because they, they will no longer be applicable in the way that you think. And that really uh, three of the recommended ways that Rudolf Steiner recommended uh, for spiritual development was, was art, music, and history. And it might sound a little strange thinking of them and having some kind of connection, but they they actually give you something that you can work with over time and gradually unfold one's sense for truth. And, and like through art, it doesn't limit you. If you just approach things uh, analytically and trying to work through it with your abstract mind, you're going to end up leaving a great deal out of the picture. Yeah, I don't find it unusual at all to, to think of this. I've actually heard art described as frozen music. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a good description. And architecture is frozen music because the, the uh, original designation of that, I forget which author it was, it was a... Uh, but uh, well, yeah, well, an architect so, told me the quote, so that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, and and that's actually true. And you can uh, look at the great cathedrals that were constructed under the, the uh, 
directorship of the Knights Templar, and you can see, like they they call them choirs, and and this whole idea of that they were places in which, uh, unless there was people in there, it wasn't really it was it wasn't really manifesting what it was supposed to manifest. Whereas, in distinction from that, in the ancient world, you had temples where the human being wasn't even necessary for it to be what it was. Right. So it's a very a distinction having that whole idea of the community was had now become a part of that whole spiritualizing process. And now, I can't, you know, have the, the term grail angel out there without, firstly, we probably have to go back to the grail. So in, in this view of the grail, is it an actual physical cup or something more Da Vinci Codish or something else entirely? Well, and that's, that's brings up the point I'm trying to make. When you approach things artistically, you leave the individual free and to pursue it because it's a quest. It's a quest of the Holy Grail, right? Mm -hmm. So you're searching and it's an open ended quest. I mean, in, in the Grail story of uh, Wolfram von Eschenbach, there's Lady Adventure, and he's telling you I, uh, to open your heart, right? Well, what does that mean? I mean, are you supposed to rip yourself open, or is this, this is more of a gesture of entering into that realm of, of warmth, the, the source of uh, love in our being? And so you don't want to over describe and, and be over final. So, so many historians, uh, they try to uh, receive uh, their understandings and take it to closure as if it's like this great accomplishment. But I see them as just like signposts, you know, it's like it's pointing in a particular direction. Because if you look at the word grail, uh, it's uh, translated from the word gradeni in Latin, which means gradually. So we know it's something that comes along gradually. Now the grail is described by Wolfram von Eschenbach variously as a thing or a stone. And then you can get into the, the grail lore and say, it tells about how in the early Christian centuries, the angels took the grail and they lifted up into the spiritual world until an individual would come along that was worthy to receive the grail kingship, which was Parsifal. The pure fool, right? He's the pure fool. He's, he was raised in his mother, Hertzloida, which means heart sorrow. Her husband had, had ran off to be a knight, and he never came back. And so she was bound and determined that, that Parsifal, who was born uh, and, and never really knew his father because he'd gone off on a crusade. And so... She was going to make sure that her son didn't do that. So she lived, they lived out in, in the wilds and grew up in the forest amongst the animals and the trees. And he didn't really know anything. He was like totally naive. And then one day these knights show up and he didn't know what they were. And these guys with these suits of armor on and all this regalia and he starts questioning them and it, it becomes eminently clear that here's a guy that's a bumpkin who doesn't really know anything. And that's kind of an image of 
uh, a modern individual before they pursued the path. We're pumpkins. We don't really know anything. And we're starting from scratch, so to speak. And that's okay. That's, that's what somebody has to understand that anybody uh, can qualify themselves to begin uh, the Grail quest. It is not an exclusive club because Christ came for all beings. And so it doesn't limit it to just members of a, a particular elite club. Although there are elite clubs that partake of this, it's not exclusively a property of them. Was Parsifal Percival? Well, sometimes it's, 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 it has various spellings. Percival is more the British spelling, okay. you know. And, Same person. Yeah. So you identify Grail Angels singular, but you said the Grail Angels or the Angels. Actually, it reminds me of the sort of the Mists of Avalon, the, how the nuns they, they took or someone took Arthur. You know, the Arthur story is very reminiscent. And, you know, I've had someone say that, the, you know, the, the Arthur story was just the story of Jesus, just written as a, as a British uh, chivalry story so that they wouldn't get in trouble, you know, for, for writing the Christ story. I don't know if that's, if there's any truth to that or not, but it, uh, it certainly is appealing. Anyway, my initial question was, it, it, who's the Grail Angel? Okay, when you get down to that, it, that develops a whole cascade of concepts to be able to uh, even uh, come close to it. First of all, uh, a very good friend of mine, Joe Visconti, who ran for governor out in Connecticut, among other things, and he's the president of the American Shakespeare Theater. Mm. Uh, he's an Emmy Award-winning videographer. All this, he's done all this stuff, right? And but he, like, like myself, has spent his life studying the work of Rudolf Steiner. And <clears throat> when uh, he approaches a, a subject, he, he tries to bring it into into a practical sphere of activity because he, you know, he's a he's a builder. That's a, that's his principal trade, and so he has to deal with very very practical people. So the way in which he would explain something is is quite different from the way I might explain it, for example. But in getting into understanding what a Grail Angel entails, uh, if you go to the work of Rudolf Steiner, you'll see that it's rooted in a very old tradition, and you can look in Scripture and you can find. An event that's told about St. Paul when he goes to Athens and he ends up meeting Dionysius the Areopagite. And uh, he's, he meets him and there's a woman also with him. And he ends up uh, becoming the first bishop of Athens. And you can go to the preserved uh, writings of the tradition of Dionysius the Areopagite that eventually came to be written in the 6th century by one of his successors, in which is told uh, how he came to uh, be a Christian and because he was like one of the judges, basically, for Athens. and But out of that tradition is, is a book that's uh, usually called The Celestial Hierarchy. And then there are the classical uh, names for the hierarchical beings or the angelic beings, the angel, the archangel, the archai, the exousiae, adunamis, curiotites, thrones, uh, cherubim, seraphim. So there's that series of nine uh, 
supersensible beings uh, that are treated as a reality. And the funny thing is, is why I mentioned Joe is because uh, a while back, he went around and he started asking anybody he'd run into, do you believe in angels? And he said, you know, they almost always said yes. And so people believe in angels, but they don't quite know what to do with it. They believe in it. What, what are you supposed to do? You know, they, again, they're like Parsifal. They don't really know. how. how what can I do to, to gain insights into this? And I would say that the, the best place I know to look is the work of Rudolf Steiner because it's, his work is embedded within the understandings based upon the, the understanding of the ninefold spiritual hierarchies. And so your grail angel, uh, when you go to his principal work, Esoteric Science and Outline, uh, also previously called Occult Science and Outline, in there he said, were I to give this work another title, it would be the grail. And so you see that the, the grail is this thing that you gradually come to understand that involves the angelic hierarchies and that this is an actual spiritual stream that leads all the way back to St. Paul, who founded that first esoteric school, and that these teachings are the fruit of, of that particular spiritual stream, although it's hardly ever mentioned by uh your typical theologians, they do mention uh, Dionysius the Areopagite. You can't ignore him. I mean, he's the second most quoted source in the works of St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologia, you know, next to the Bible. And so you have him playing a, a, a prominent role in the history of Christianity, but it's a role in which your average uh, Christian parishioner, shall we say, uh, is unaware of. Right. Yeah, this is a, this is sort of church history, or really beyond church history. Um, it, it's not so much you know, studying the scripture itself, which is what a lot of people do. Um, in the, so we're not going to say it's like it's Michael or Raphael or Metatron or something like that. It's a, it's a, it's a bigger cadre than that. Well, there is, there is that too. See, so when you, most people, Rudolf Steiner once said that most people, uh, when they have an experience of God or of Christ, usually what happens is they have an experience of their guardian angel, and they interpret that to mean that they had met God, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, but the angel, angelos, means messenger. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, were God to communicate to you, he would communicate to you through an angel. See? So Malachi, right? Well, uh, Malak, uh, that, you know, that means Lord, but there's, and then there's Moloch, which well, is. Moloch that, is that, different that, entirely. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's that spirit of um, pestilence and money and greed. Right. So, sort of like the Babylonian uh, baby eater. A demon. Yeah, yeah, that's that's that, that's the thing that we're struggling against, actually, you know, and that was the opponent of the Templar, so to speak, was that. Well, that's great. That spirit of darkness. I mean, I'm saying that's great, like that's great, but but <laughs> wrong, bad choice of words. But I was just uh, my next question was going to be about the Templars, but unless you haven't finished on the the angel part, because that was really interesting. Well, you're in charge, you know, so we can go any which way you like. 
Okay, well, let's go, let's go to what the Templar's real role in this was because, I, you know, I, you can talk to a million different people about the Templars and you'll probably get a million different interpretations and versions and, you know, and, uh, you know, I've spoken to wonderful people who've traced the Templars, you know, uh, you know, into North America, which may or may not be true. I mean, back in, you know, hundreds of years ago. I don't mean, you know, through, uh, you know, an order now, but what, what were the Templars role in this and how does that turn into the rosicrucians i i confess i i read that book the chemical wedding everyone says it's filled with symbolism all of it was lost on me i probably have to read it about 17 more times to to get it but i probably won't but you know for for the the cliff note versions of like what's the real role of the templars what's the line to the rosicrucians then maybe we can circle back to that that grail angel that pesky grail angel Let's go back uh, and, and we look at the, the founding of the Knights Templar and by a small circle of knights uh, coming from France, right. you know. And so you have this uh, relationship that's described as to protect uh, pilgrims to the Holy Land and things of that nature. Uh, but really, when you look at it more deeply, if you get into some of the indications for Gus Steiner, it was a striving to create a, a Christian center that was separate from Rome, and that the, that the papal Rome had become such a dominant force of a particular type of Christianity that there were those nobles that wanted to be able to not sever their relationship to Rome so much as be able to facilitate a center to where they could pursue it uh, and there were certain subjects of more depth that were involved. Mind you, at that time, uh, you weren't even supposed to put, possess a, a Bible, right? That, right. That, was, that was the rule. You know, and If you wanted to find out about the Bible, you went to the church and the priest told you uh, what you were supposed to uh, believe and think out of the Bible. And so there's this whole idea that there's this underground stream of Christianity, which is tied into this stream I referred to earlier uh, regarding Dionysius the Areopagite and the events in, in the first century leading up to published writings in the sixth century that ended up with the uh, the closing of the uh, Platonic Academy, uh, shifting over into the East and Syria and parts, and then traveling, the information traveling up into Constantinople, and Michael the Stammerer presenting copies to uh, the Carolingian court. Now, back in the 8th and ninth century, there's this whole uh, ferment of this uh, grail stream. So it's very much tied into actual historical events. And uh, Rudolf Steiner is very clear to make that point. Although he's, you know, uh, it's distributed over many places throughout his work. You really have to do diligent study to be able to piece it all together, which is uh, part of the reason that I wrote my book. I was able to bring various threads together to give people uh, more uh, to work with 
uh, to approach such a daunting subject and to have the whole cosmological backdrop because in my works you'll find that there's a whole series of diagrams that lay out this esoteric cosmology uh, and how it all relates to the ancient mysteries and the modern mysteries and the destiny of mankind. And I had done extensive research because here's a, a, a four volume bibliography wow. that I wrote years ago on ancient Egypt and Mesopotamian studies from the library of Dr. Marjorie Fisher. And I compiled the back of it was finished in 1998, years to do. But uh, so I've done a very much extensive studies yeah, to be really. able to come to the conclusions that I came to. Okay. And who are the Rosicrucians? Okay, the Rosicrucians is it's very interesting because uh, the Rosicrucians you could you could see them as a continuation of this Grail stream after. Uh, the demise of the Knights Templar, that that esoteric core of, of the Templar stream was taken up by the Rosicrucians. And so you have the story of Christian Rosenkreutz traveling to the East and receiving certain uh, mystery teachings and cosmological teachings, and then coming back and finding that, that basically in the courts in which he went, that they weren't really interested in what he had to say so much. So he gathered around him a small group of people to be his students. And that's the, the legendary account. But it's something that extends even further back in time. And uh, it's, it's hard to abbreviate it properly. But basically what I could say is that there is an esoteric Christianity that runs parallel to your uh, ordinary uh, exoteric uh, or mundane Christianity that most people encounter, but that you'll find that there's a great many more people that are aware of that than one might think, and even people that you wouldn't think uh, are influenced by it in a profound way. One of my teachers was in Italy, and he went to uh, the city of Assisi, where the great uh, center of the Franciscan monks uh, of St. Francis of Assisi. And he went there and he was looking at a painting and, and uh, one of the friars walks up to him and says, excuse me, are you an anthroposophist? <laughs> he says, why yes, how'd you know? He said, well, by the way you were looking at that painting, come with me. And so he took him down into the, into the basement of, of the uh, monastery, and there was this, this great library, and included in the library, they had the complete collected edition at that time of the works of Rudolf Steiner, and they were diligently studying it. It was in the original German, and he, of course, spoke German and English and everything. And they were asking him all these questions. And that's Werner Glass, who was a, he was a protege of Walter Johannes Stein, who wrote Ninth Century World History in the Light of the Holy Grail, and was one of the central figures around 
Rudolf Steiner, and but Werner Glass was his protege. And uh, Werner Glass was my teacher, and my best friend Douglas was Werner Glass's protege. So that there's a very much a, a connection sure. uh, to this. And in fact, when when uh, Werner came to Detroit to found the, the Waldorf Institute, he told me this story. I took him out to dinner one time. He told me this story about he went to this uh, Duns Scotus, which is a monastery in, you know, outside of Detroit, and he went there. Uh, to check it out for a possible location for uh, moving the teacher training. And so he went there, and it looked just like the monastery at Assisi. And they took him in, and they took him down into this library, and it looked just like the library in Assisi. And that, he said, that's when I knew this is where the Institute was supposed to be, because there was that, that connection, that there are actually Franciscan monks that are studying Rudolf Steiner, you know. So we thought this will be uh, a friendly environment. This was not on my agenda, but um, the, you can't really talk about the Masons, I mean, the Templars and the Rosicrucians without talking about the Masons. And I'm not sure if there's any accuracy to that or not. Um, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've encountered to say that I'm a Mason and I, if I could tell you all the knowledge I have, I would. And, you know, this is on social media. And it just seems to me that if you're a Mason, you would you would never put that on social media. I mean, it's just it's just, so uh, you know it's, it's like saying I'm a knight of the round table. You know, <laughs> I don't know, but uh, is, do, do well, the Masons they fit? become they become a little more uh, outward in the last uh, say shall we say forty years or so, trying to rehabilitate their image because there are Masonic lodges that have taken a dark turn. You know, and there is some real problems in Freemasonry as we speak. For example, the lodges in the West Coast or the lodges in, in Denver. You know, I, the infiltration of the lodges by people who follow the work of Aleister Crowley, which is not wholesome, you know, and, and but yet Freemasonry itself comes out of a, a Christian, a wholesome Christian impulse. And so you have the builders of the cathedrals, and it leads back actually to the, the uh, Roman college of builders. You know, there's a whole tradition of the builders, and, and that it's that Cain stream. Right. And then you have the Abel stream of King Solomon, and that Solomon was able to conceive of the temple. But he didn't have the skills to build it, so he brings in Hiram, king of Tyre, and Hiram Abiff, who's his builder. And it was Hiram Abiff who's of that cane stream that has the ability to be able to, to work as an artisan and build the temple himself. So there's that whole idea of it was an opportunity for those two streams to reconcile, but then there's the whole story of how the Queen of Sheba gets involved and and the the workmen, uh, the jealous workmen end up killing Hiram Abiff and, and that, that supposedly King Solomon knew about it and he could have stopped it, but he didn't because of his jealousy over the Queen of Sheba. And so there's a whole interesting lore that has to do with this struggle between the, the stream of Cable and the stream of Abel and the stream of Cain, and that that's uh, 
a central task of, of mankind, and, and that it was reconciled ultimately through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, well, that's an old grudge if it goes back to person three and four, um, unless you believe that they also had twin sisters at the time um, as well that, you know, names comes out. But as I understand the the Masonic legend involving Cain, and and I've seen some other places where it's duplicated, basically when Cain was uh, um, exiled, uh, he had children and grandchildren. He built a city. Uh, I think he called it Enoch, not the same Enoch that was the, the ascended Enoch. Um, but the city didn't last for whatever. So all of his kids and grandkids, they all had these skills sort of like, uh, from the song Donovan Atlantis, you know, the, the poet, the artist, the builder, the, the magician, the, 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 the healer, like they, all, all of these, the warrior, all, all of these sort of skills, um, uh, came from Cain, the, the sort of like the, what you consider, I guess, industrialization. Um, whereas farming and, 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 uh, husbandry and, and things like that were, were with the Adam line. And, uh, so I guess they had to, uh, Solomon had to bring them back together to build the temple. He needed the, 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 the great builders. Um, though I, I, I don't, I confess I have no idea why the city of Enoch, didn't last if the great builders were there, but maybe, maybe, maybe like the great builders of the pyramid, they had to fail a few times before they could uh, build the, the one that lasted. Well, you know, there is that whole uh, lore, and if you approach it artistically, then you don't have to worry as much about dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's and assume that you're approaching a subject. And it's mythic in content. It doesn't mean it isn't talking about something, mm -hmm. but it's the way in which it's talking about it that gives it its uh, kind of magical potency, so to speak. But that you have this idea of these are, are, are mythic themes that are relevant for mankind to be able to riddle out uh, the destiny of, of uh, a human being and the unfolding of the human being in a wholesome way. And so whether or not things are strictly true historically in the way they are presented, we have to leave it to uh, the rare individuals like uh, uh, Rudolf Steiner to be able to look into the Akashic record and, and give us an indication of, of that which might be uh, specifically uh, relevant historically. And that's the challenge because Rudolf Steiner had said that one of the things that Christ accomplished through his incarnation, being the, the one and only incarnation, uh, a divine spiritual being of that stature in the human body, that he would never reincarnate, that he came that one time. And were he to come again, it'd be as if he didn't get it right the first time, and that Christ came in that incarnation and he entered into earth evolution. And as Christ said, I shall be with you to the end of the earth so that he is here. But it's now up to us to be able to take up the task of coming to a relationship to Christ rather than waiting for something to come to us the way it would in the ancient world is just a gift of the spiritual world. You know, that ancient mankind had clairvoyance, but it was a gift of the spiritual world. 
Now, if mankind is to come to clairvoyant understanding in the right way, it would be through their own attainment. I note that you mentioned Aleister Crowley, and, you know, I don't know a lot about the man or his work. I hear mixed things, I guess, depending on who the consumer is. You know, you, you described it as not wholesome. And in the foreword uh, written was, it was named H.P. Blavatsky, who, of course, I mean, you know, her and Aleister Crowley, I mean, you know, in, in you almost can't have a conversation about one without mentioning the other. Uh, so I'm assuming from the, her mention in the foreword that, that you have a more favorable view of her, but that, that's not, whether I'm right or wrong about that isn't really the important part. The, the question is, who in, who in your view, uh, or, or what in view, in your view was Aleister Crowley saying? What was, where, where did he go wrong and where does H.B. Plavatsky fit into this? Well, that, geez, that becomes a whole, that would take up a whole episode yeah. just to scratch the surface. But basically, you know, Aleister Crowley himself, uh, declared himself, uh, the great beast, right? I mean, he was very much into this dramatic uh, role-playing, theatrical, ritual uh, way of doing things. And it's interesting to note that uh, he did visit uh, where Rudolf Steiner was, and uh, but Rudolf Steiner refused to see him. And as uh, uh, Rudolf Steiner had also refused to see uh, George Gurdjieff. So... Because he considered that, that, that their manner of uh, approaching the esoteric wasn't wholesome. And which is, you know, I can, those are the only two people that I can think of ever hearing that he refused to see because Rudolf Steiner had a continual stream of people coming and visiting him, you know, people like Albert Schweitzer and all, you know, just all, all manner of historic figures would come uh, to his lectures and come to to speak with him personally. And so, uh, but, you know, I, I know a lot about Crowley's work, more than most of the people that think they know something. And likewise, uh, with Blavatsky. And with Blavatsky, what I can say is her focus became more the Eastern school than that of esoteric Buddhism and uh, understanding things based upon the principles of Advaita, of Vedanta, uh, Hinduism, and esoteric Buddhism. Although her Isis Unveiled was coming from a more Rosicrucian-type inspiration, uh, for various reasons, she ended up gravitating and eventually uh, moving to Adyar in India and basing her uh, center of influence out of Adyar in India, which is all well and good, and it influenced very significant people, played a big role in the uh, ultimately the uh, achievement of independence of India and uh, influenced people like uh, Mahatma Gandhi, and, and you know, it all goes on and on. Uh, uh, Henry Steele Alcott, who was the co-founder with Blavatsky of the Theosophical Society, if you mention his name in southern India, I mean, he's like one of the most respected people there. He helped reform Buddhism in, in southern India and, uh, and uh, Sri Lanka. So, you know, 
These are formidable figures, but uh, with Blavatsky, she's kind of chaotic in her writing style, but she knows way more than, than, than a great many people that supposedly know a lot. But it's difficult to get it through her writings because she's uh, kind of a chaotic writer and she's all over the map, you know. So uh, it's a lifetime study in and of itself, just studying her secret doctor. Yeah, I'm well aware I'm going to probably have to do separate shows on Alistair Crowley and, and Blavatsky as well uh, with, you know, with, maybe with you. I don't know. Who, whoever's willing to do it, who I can find that it, that, that knows it well enough. Um, all right, well, let's move to on to your books because, uh, you know, I, there, you, you told us what one of the words means. And I saw there were a bunch of words in here and a couple. But I, I, I've a question. I think it's obvious. But in again, the name Adam Cadman was thrown around. I assume that's Adam, first Adman, and Cadman means first man in, in some language. It's the archetypal human. Okay. So it's like the Adam Cadman of, of the Kabbalah. Well, yeah, there, there's another thing I don't know much about is, even though I've had a show on Kabbalah and Kabbalah, son, I, you know, obviously I haven't studied it. Um, okay. So there were, there was also Theosophia, uh, which I, I guess is the wisdom of God. Uh, yes, I correct. And there was, Philosophia, which is the love of wisdom, I believe. Yes. Right. So those were those were those were the other two concepts with anthroposophia, and that's. But by the way, on a side note, that's what Reverend Parry was trying to change the name to the the Nakod and the Philom Anthro. Sophia or Anthroposophy conference. Anthroposophy. Anthroposophy. And nobody can say it. And everyone knows what anthropology is. And nobody knows what that is. There are not enough people. And he wisely kept it at uh, anthropology. Or, you know, I would just be saying Nacon forever instead of saying the field of anthropology. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, it's interesting. You know, I mean, it's a word that before Rudolf Steiner was not encountered very much. I mean, you you have the uh, alchemical writings of uh, Thomas Vaughan, you know, for example, the brother of Henry Vaughan, the poet. Uh, he has his uh, book, uh, Anthroposophia Theomagica, for example. And so there's a, it's a very obscure terminology, but it pointed towards what Rudolf Steiner wanted to, to articulate, and that is, what is a human being? And uh, so the, so much of his work gets into clarifying the understanding of the threefold nature of the human being, of thinking, feeling, and will, you know, uh, head, heart, and limbs. And that that is something that uh, is a very, very deep field of study, and it takes a, a great deal of dedication to be able to even scratch the surface. Okay. All right. So... There was a, first of all, there was a, a phrase called plemora of spiritual be beings. Now I know what plethora is. I don't know what plemora is. I'm assuming uh, the word is similar. Pleroma. What, what, okay. So pronounce it one more time. And what does it mean? Pleroma has to do with the whole symphony of, of uh, celestial beings, so to speak. Uh, a choir, you know, it, when you're looking at uh, spiritual beings, uh, even when you get to the first stage of the angels, the, Rudolf Steiner says when you come into contact with one angel, you're also in contact with the whole company of angels. So that there's this, uh, it's like a, a symphonic 
experience, so to speak, and that because they're so united in their endeavor that, that they have a connectivity that is far beyond mankind who we continually experience ourselves as being isolated and separate from each other. And you also you mentioned, I'm going to call it a someone named, again, I'm thinking it's named Hilarion, or, and that sounds like, you know, Hyperion, like it's, it sounds like a very lofty name, like that might be a luminary or, the, or maybe perhaps the Grail Angel or something. So who, who or what is Hilarion? Well, uh, Hilarion or Illyrian, depending on, you know, which source you're referring to, because uh, Blavatsky's at times would write it Hilarion and other times Illyrian. Mm. He is a particular, uh, one of the uh, great leaders of mankind. Uh, Rudestine referred to as the masters of wisdom and harmonization of sensations and feelings. And that these great beings are amongst us, uh, but they're very unassuming, uh, usually in, in their current role, so that you may meet one and not even know that you've met one, mm. and that they're great servants of mankind. What, what would they would call these bodhisattvas, that they're here for other people, that they've already achieved uh, states of, of consciousness and being that are in the future destiny of mankind. They're, they're uh, manifesting right now. And so uh, they are the guru's guru, so to speak. Is this similar to the concept of the 36 heroes in, I think it's Kabbalah, um, that don't even, may not even know that they're heroes, that the 36 good people who will come and help. Do, do you know what I'm referring to? Well, it's, a, it's akin to that. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to attribute sameness to it because it's a very specific thing when you're talking about the, the masters of wisdom because it's, they're like offices, so to speak, in the hierarchy of earth evolution. And so you have a group of 12 and, uh, only seven of them were incarnated at any one time. And uh, so it's it's uh, very much an actual uh, part and parcel of our relationship to this whole cosmic scheme in which we're involving, which we tend to think of as being somewhat happenstance and arbitrary. Actually, there is a, a divine order behind all this uh, crazy world in which we live. If you see a stupid smile on my face, it's because there's so much depth in this, but also in a reboot of a, of a show called Battlestar Galactica, they put so much mythology and theology in there and they hid it in there. And I did not know this one last part until just now. And that is that not to, not, to, again, this is a, this would be its own show. And in fact, I did a show where we did a deep dive into Battlestar Galactica with a science author named Matt Williams, but they basically this, the Cylons created basically Cylon humans, they, 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 they called them skin jobs. Well, the humans did. They looked like humans, but they were Cylons. They were basically organic robots. And they were trying to, to, uh, uh, create basically Nephilim, like, a, a you know, a, a new breed to take us into the future. And it's all convoluted. But the point is that seven of them were revealed 
uh, until the end of the show, but the, it, it took until the end for the last five to be revealed. So the seven were incarnate until the end where we realized who the last five were, and that's where they got that little thing from. Or it's just a strange yeah. coincidence. Well, you'll, you'll get that kind of thing, because mind you, uh, well, my associate uh, Douglas Gabriel, who when I was at the Mayflower and then I left, he took my place, and uh, but he had been a consultant on, on Poltergeist. And then uh, he was called in to consult because uh, Bernard Glass, who I told you about, mm -hmm. who was the head of the Waldorf Institute of Training, uh, was head of the Waldorf School out in Hollywood. And he knew all those people, right? I mean, he was like Marilyn Monroe's uh, anthroposophy mentor, you know. And so it's like uh, he got approached by, by uh, Kathleen Kennedy. And uh, he he's too busy. He directed her to talk to his protege, which is Douglas Gabriel. And so he consulted with her. And then later on, Marsha Lucas, uh, George Lucas's wife, uh, showed up. And so he had thematic and mythic contributions to Poltergeist and uh, Star Wars and also uh, Indiana Jones series, all those and uh, recently I heard somebody was out at Skywalker Ranch and they, just to check up on it because of the things, the claims that have been made, they started looking through the library and they noticed that uh, preponderance of the books in the library had the stamp from the Mayflower bookshop in them. That's because they got them from the Mayflower. Right. You know, that's, just, that's just a fact of history. What anyone might think of that. At the time, uh, when we were doing things like that, I mean, I have a, somewhere in my files, I have a, a, a script from first night. I was, I was questioned about being a consultant for that movie. Uh, a lot of things came up over the years, you know, and so, uh, again, we didn't think that there was that much significance to what we were doing, but we were planting seeds for the future, just like Johnny Appleseed. Indeed. No, there's, there's, there's a lot of deep stuff hidden there. There's also a lot of, you know, I mean, a lot of his surface level stuff that even I can, you know, like basically my level or maybe, maybe two years ago, Jeff, you know, in, in some things. Um, but still fun. Um, all right. So that brings us to the Grail diagrams and the major arcana and the noble traveler. So, I mean, I, I think probably people can extrapolate what the noble traveler is, but it's probably best to hear it directly from from the, the source who wrote, wrote the books anyway. So what are these 22 diagrams, the 22 arcana, and, and who is our noble traveler? Okay, well, uh, when you get into understanding uh, the whole idea of, of these cosmological diagrams that I showed you earlier, Mm -hmm. That whole series of these great many, they're astronomical, astrological, relating to the mysteries of time. Rudolf Steiner said that Christ gave time back to mankind. And that is the understanding that things change over time, that we're not the same as we were even in the Middle Ages or or before that, so that you have these different time periods that are stages in the soul evolution of mankind coming after uh, what it's into what's called the post-Atlantean period, that there's a cycle that, that is designated as 25,920 years, 
which is interesting because you take on average 925,920 breaths in a day, and that these cycles uh, of ages go through 2,160 years. And so you have old Indian in the age of Cancer, and then the old Persian in the age of Gemini, and then the old Egypto uh, Babylonian. Chaldean in the age of Taurus, and then you, at 747 BC, we have the founding of the city of Rome at the beginning of the, the age of, of the Ram, right? The age of Aries, and that's the age of the intellectual soul. And then it goes until 1413, it begins the consciousness whole period in which we currently dwell. And so it's unfolding history with an understanding of the themes that present themselves through these de developmental stages. That's what's really strongly developed in my first book. And also within those uh, uh, 2,160 year cycles, there are cycles of roughly 350 years uh, of archangelic periods uh, that go in a planetary sequence. And, uh, we're currently in the age of the Archangel Michael, which began in November of 1879. And that's the age of, of freedom. So we're supposed to develop an understanding of what it means to be a free and, and conscientious human being, capable of moral imagination, moral inspiration, and moral intuition. Wow, that's a lot. Um, yeah, it is a lot. <laughs> And that's why I had to write a book about it to make it approachable. Right. Well, two. <laughs> All right. Yeah, uh, two. <laughs> I'm not even sure what to ask next. Is there something that I should be asking that I didn't? Well, I think what we should be doing is the thinking uh, toward what we're going to talk about next time. I, I find it best not to go over long with these things because it's a lot to digest. It's a lot. Some people look at it. Oh, that's too long. I don't have time. And so uh, I look forward to speaking with you again. We can pursue uh, some of these subjects uh, in greater depth. I do too. And I appreciate that you're offer to do that. I was going to ask you. And uh, in fact, I'll, I'll even suggest that you suggest the order that we go through because I think that you're 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 the master here. We're the students. And, uh, and also, if anybody's interested, uh, my first book is currently out of print, but I still have copies of my second book, and that's actually a good place to start. And so you can contact me uh, through uh, academia.org, uh, and my, my uh, handle is johnbarnell888. You can find my channel, and instructions for getting my books are available underneath all my personal videos on there and all that. Uh, if you need to get a hold of me, that's how you do it. Okay, wonderful. Listen, can't thank you enough. So much information here. I, you know, I can't believe it's only been an hour because I feel like I've gotten a lot more than that in here. And I can't wait to listen back to the show. Um, and folks, I hope you feel the same. And we're honored that, that uh, Mr. Barnwell is going to join us again. Um, and we'll figure out when that will be. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Please give us a rating and a review. And if possible, refer us to somebody because referrals are more important than any sort of rating or review or suggestion by Apple or Spotify or whatever it is, a personal referral. So uh, thank you all for coming into the Garden of Doom and we will 
hear from you, or really you'll hear from us next week. Thank you.